Welcome, everyone, to the dubious book of famous deeds. I'm Paul Bates. You have found the podcast that explores history through the rosy lens of the 1889 British book, The Pictorial Treasury of Famous Men and Famous Deeds. The men are obscure, the deeds are questionable, but I am here with every resource at my command. I'm talking about the internet. To do the research, fill in the blanks, and give you the true story behind each given chapter. I'm so excited about this chapter because it's the first one uh, where we'll be talking about art. Whose art? The art of Giovanni Dupre, known then and now as the second best sculptor of 19th century Italy. <laughs> Aren't you excited already? We're going to start by learning about his impoverished childhood. We're going to learn about the love story between him and his wife. And then we're going to learn about his professional life, the life of a working artist uh, in those times. Now, I realize that a podcast isn't the ideal medium through which to discuss the visual arts, so I am providing you with visual aids. If you go to uh, the podcast's Instagram feed, at famous.deeds, or check out our website at the Sonar Network, that's www.thesonarnetwork.com, you'll be able to find uh, a picture of each sculpture, each painting that we're going to discuss. Um, you don't need it until the second half, though, so you've got some time. Anyways, it's very exciting. You'll be able to follow along with us, with your eyes as well as your ears. Two senses today, everybody. Two senses. And joining us for this episode, actor, writer, comedian, Alex Trebek impersonator. You can hear her on CBC's Because News. And now that theaters are slowly opening, you can find her performing around the city of Toronto. Please welcome Jan Caruana. Okay, here we go, Jan. Are you ready to get into this? I'm ready. <laughs> Chapter 6. Giovanni Dupre, the Italian Sculptor. One of the greatest of Italian sculptors has given his memoirs to the world, having been written, as he tells us, for the benefit of young artists in the future, as well as a memorial for his family. It's funny, because we haven't heard of him. Like, it's not like Rodin or, you know, Man Ray or whatever, famous artists. It's uh, Giovanni Rabisi here. What's his name? <laughs> <laughs> Giovanni Dupre. Giovanni Dupre. Born in 1817. If you look him up, he is the second most famous Italian sculptor of his day. He's the Burger King of Italian sculptors. Got it. The most famous would be Lorenzo Bartolini. Of course. Why is the second best sculptor in this book? It's because he just published his memoir, and the authors of this book can easily just comb through it and pick out some highlights and put it in their chapter. Okay. Here we go. To the art student, the name of Dupre is sufficiently well known. <laughs> Burger King. Burger King. Well, the Whopper. <laughs> and those who know nothing of his works have perhaps heard of him as a striking example of a self-made man. Oh. His name has figured in volere e potere, 
to will is to be able. It is a sad story of young genius struggling desperately with every adverse circumstance of which poverty was not the least. So, volere e potere, meaning where there's a will, there's a way, was a book in Italian based on the, the best-selling work Self-Help by British writer Samuel Smiles. What, what year was this? Self-Help was published in 1859. It was an overnight success, and it is considered the Bible of mid-Victorian liberalism. It basically crystallized the way people look at not only self-improvement, but the poor. It really popularized the notion of, hey, you're poor, all you need to do is change the way you think, and oh. then you too can become successful. Right, so it's like the precursor to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, sort of. It is exactly that. And that notion is still popular today as a huge defense for why we shouldn't help people. Yeah, right? and, and for capitalism. Uh, but it's, it's striking to me that um, self-help was like a thing, like a, a notarized thing even back in the mid-1800s. It feels like such a like groovy thing that we've kind of come up with in like the 20th century, but it dates back probably even further still. Yeah, this book was written by a man who believed that poverty wasn't systematic, but instead rooted in bad habits. So you decided to change your habits, um, sure. which is, you know, it's still how Republicans view poverty today. Uh, if you want an idea of how influential this book and where this book sits on an ideological spectrum, Margaret Thatcher is said to have wanted to give self-help as a gift to every school child in Britain. Oh, dear. So, anyways, okay. self-help is a huge overnight success, and an Italian version is published. It's called Volere e Potere, and it includes Giovanni Dupre as an example of someone born into abject poverty who becomes successful on his own merits. Good for him. Good for him. Okay. <laughs> and he is, his story is sad, as you'll see. Here we go. Giovanni Dupre was the son of a poor wood engraver of Siena and was born on March the 1st, 1817. His infancy was spent in wretched poverty, and the hardships of life were aggravated by the severe and unsympathetic father who did not recognize the latent talent of the child, neither did he show much consideration for his natural feelings. His dad did sound like a bit of an angry guy. Yeah, a bit of a meanie fought with Dupre's mom. Eventually, they became separated, and his father uh, took Giovanni with him, left the other kids back there. I guess his mom was like, pick one. And uh, Wait, 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 wait. His father left the mom? Yeah. And took Giovanni with him? Yeah. And he was a woodworker, the dad? Yes, a woodcarver. So he was an it, artist as well. Yeah, it seems weird that he wouldn't want to nurture his son's natural sculpting talent. Also, did he take him with him because he was the oldest and could, like, carry things? I think that was the idea. The eldest son, historically, is like the, is the person who's supposed to, you know, make the money or... Yeah, take care of the family. Um, but also, good to have an assistant in the house. Yeah. Dupre writes in his memoir that his father did some lessons for him. You know, Dupre never went to school. Giovanni didn't take to them, but he did take to his father's drawings. Uh, and he would, he really loved copying his dad's drawings, and that's where he learned to love art. 
Well, that's good. It's it's funny because we this guy sounds like a dink, the the dad. But it's funny what we take from like those even those traumatic traumatic situations, and we actually do have things to like thank our families for. Mm-hmm. Um, you walk away going like you know, shaking your fist at your ancestral roots. But at the end of the day, like there's still the people that instill all the the things inside you that make you, you like, you can go to therapy and, and talk, you know, uh, for hours about what your parents did to you. Right. But he's, he's also able in his book to say what his dad did for him. And he talks about his dad with some sensitivity and pity, uh, even though he was like, pretty objectively not a good father. So I kind of like that. Yeah, that's an evolved human. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you can kind of like face face your tormentors with with love in your heart, like that's that's hugely evolutionary. It also speaks to me how little things change over the chasm of time. Yeah. Uh, that you see versions of this dad still out there. Yeah. Uh, let's let's move on for some more okay. details about how bad his dad was. He used to take him with him. We're talking about the father and Giovanni. The father used to take Giovanni with him to the different towns where he went seeking employment and often left him alone for days to mind the house while he himself visited the rest of the family. What a dick! <laughs> wow. That's brutal did he leave the family because there was no work in the town like in Siena like did he have to be a traveling man a uh, little bit and also they just couldn't live together they were like the the, was, the, the mom and the dad the husband right. and wife yeah acrimony but to go back and say hey listen I'm gonna I'm gonna visit your mom and your brothers and sisters you can't come yeah remember all those kids you used to play with that <laughs> that you're related to? Guess what? <laughs> Never again. <laughs> That's heartbreaking. Yeah, oh, it gets worse. Uh, oh, no. The little fellow loved his mother. Oh, gr- the little fellow. And grieved bitterly at the long separation from her. On one occasion, he escaped from his father and traveled from Siena to Florence almost the whole way on foot in order to spend the Easter festival with his mother and sisters. He was nine years old. It's a 15-hour walk. I Google mapped it. Oh. And near the end, he got a lift on a carriage because people felt so sorry for him. But that was like at least a 13-hour walk he did that day. Yeah, on his little legs. Yeah, just to see his mom. He was eventually apprenticed to an engraver. After the Easter episode, he got to live with his mom after that. Oh, that's nice. Yes, he apprenticed with... uh, a man named Paolo Sani, where he is said to have been employed in the reproduction of fakes of Renaissance sculptures. That is oh. obviously definitely a good business to be in an 1850s sculpture if you're, you know, if you're an artist. Get oh into some goodness. work of fakes. How grifty. How grifty indeed. Uh, but while working for his master with a will and ability and giving his small earnings to his mother, he found time to pursue his favorite study by laboring during the hours of repose. Sculpture had for him an attraction which could not be resisted or overcome, and to satisfy this innate longing, he was content to deprive himself of repose and nutriment. <gasps> he did not eat or sleep in order to do his art is what that means 
Well, I feel bad that I kind of was snarky about him being the second best Italian sculptor now. It's okay, because we're about to get into uh, a portion of the story that might make you change your opinion of him. It just gets a little creepy. Okay. Okay, well, I'm used to that. Very simply and prettily, he relates the story of his first and only love. When he was between 18 and 19 years of age, he began to consort with gay companions, frequent billiard rooms, and substitute for the serious reading to which he had been addicted works of fiction of the lightest sort. So, sorry, I need to clarify. So now he's addicted to light works of fiction and gay pool rooms. This is their way of saying he's he's taking time. He's, he's a teenager, and right. he's and he's straying away from his studies and his work, and he's hanging around with his cool friends and uh, getting into misadventures and fun, playing <laughs> pool, and he is well on the way to a sullied life. Uh oh. <laughs> exactly. Sounds fun. It sounds fun to me. It doesn't sound like the worst thing, but yeah. to, you know, to the authors of The Pictorial Treasury, he's on his way to Pleasure Island where he's going to turn into a donkey if he's not careful. Sure. Okay. Just in time, before he had gone far on the dangerous and slippery path which would have led him to ruin, his guardian angel appeared and took possession of his soul <laughs> while it was still fresh and unpolluted. <laughs> At the door of his master's shop, he saw passing one day a young girl who walked with short, quick steps and downcast eyes and, quote, thoughts within herself <laughs> shut up. A girl who doesn't talk or look at you? Yum, yeah. yum, yum. You know what they say about women like that. <laughs> they should they should smile more, Jan. That's... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the young sculptor's lively and ardent imagination was impressed by the passing vision. He thought of her often at his work and longed to see her again. The next time she crossed his path was in a church. She was kneeling at prayers in the shadow, and the expression of her face was so chaste, sweet, firm, and serene that the young artist remained enchained to the spot till she rose and departed. He followed her to her place of employment and saw by the sign of the door that it was an ironing establishment. Here's a fun quote from his book. I could not believe... <laughs> that such a modest, a serious young girl could be so employed. For as a general thing, laundresses are rather frisky and provocative, turning their heads and glancing about and sometimes very slovenly in the dress. In fact, the opposite of all that dear good creature was. I think you're going to get some letters about this accent. <laughs> oh, no. Really? Is it bad? No, it's I'm really I'm doing fun. my best. Doing my best. <laughs> um, it's so funny about the the laundress thing because it, uh, it's like here are these here are these women they're just constantly probably wet all the time, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and now mm -hmm. they have to be they have to be like shamed because they they're fun they like look around they're like looking around their hands are in the water they're probably like buxom bosoms it's like a it's basically an 8 hour wet t-shirt contest 
What a what a stigma what laundresses a have to stigma. live with. Doesn't Ugh, seem fair. I can't. I can't. So he followed her to the laundress, and many times he pursued the unconscious object of his romantic passion through the streets, and when she became aware of the fact, he would turn away, disconcerted. So he's following her repeatedly now. This is today what we would call stalking. But this is like so much. This is a full, like, this guy is negging this woman. He's mm-hmm. like, I'm following you, I'm following you. And then he's like, no, I'm not. You're not that pretty. And then he's also, he's kind of gaslighting her. Because could you imagine, yes. could you imagine walking through the streets of, where is he, Florence? Yeah. Walking through the streets of Florence, you get home, you're like, I think someone's following me. And your mom's like, you're nuts. <laughs> and then you're like, no, no, I think someone's following me. And then the minute you turn around, the guy's like looking in a shop window, you'd go crazy. He's like, I've seen her. She's beautiful. And she's like, I've seen that guy. He's a creep. Um, (laughs) He's a creep and he carries around little knives like he's a sculptor. Okay. At last, he conceived the idea of opening his mind to the girl. What an idea. And with this intention, he followed her so closely one day. Just imagine his hot breath on your neck. (laughs) That she stopped and said, I will not have anyone walking after me. Good for her. The lover faltered some apology in such an agitated voice that she turned again and looked at him for a couple of minutes and said, Go to my mother's house, but do not stop me on the road again. She liked it. It was a different time. It was a different time. But these guys in this book got the quote wrong. The actual quote in his memoir is... I stammered a few words, but with so much emotion in my voice. Again, she stopped, looked at me a moment and said, Go home to your mother and do not stop me again in the streets. <gasps> These guys are rewriting history. Yeah, she said, go home to your mother. Like, that's the perfect yeah. insult. Oh, I'm going to use that so much all the time now. And yet, his next sentence in his memoir is, I gave her a grateful look and we parted. I returned to the shop with my heart overflowing with love and hope. He's like, yes, she talked to me. See, Paul, ugh, I got I got to say something here. This, <laughs> this is why every year we have that dumb debate about Baby It's Cold Outside. And everybody's mm. like, it's a rapey song. It's like, no, it's not a rapey song. Because mm-hmm. this was... This was like the time. If you were a woman and you wanted to be with a a fella, let's say, you had to like pretend to be coy, pretend to be like, I don't really want to be here because it was so shameful to like be a woman and have like sexual desires. Mm -hmm. The thing about baby, it's cold outside is we shouldn't be talking about like, oh, the guy put something in its drink, in her drink. We should be talking about the fact that women were not allowed to say yes. Therefore, every time they said no, men thought that they were saying yes. And that's the really screwed up thing. And that's like this woman. She's like, I don't like you. Your hot, garlicky breath is on my body. I don't like it. And go home to your mother. And he's like, yes, score. She loves me. Marriage. Love it. Give me a break. So he does eventually meet her mom. Okay. But... How did he find out where her mother was? He went to her place of work 
and talk to her boss. He finds out her name. Her name's Marina. But Marina's boss says, stop bothering her. This isn't going to happen. This is a respectful establishment. Leave us alone. Right. And he's like, he's like, okay, okay, but could you give me her home address? <laughs> so he's still like, all part of the dance, baby. <laughs> yes. And then his boss says, sure, here it is. So she doxes her and uh, gives up her home address. <laughs> oh, my God. And Dupre goes right to the source. He finds and talks to Marina's mother. Yeah. Sure. Okay. The mother of Maria thought Dupre too young. He was 18, so she's absolutely right. <laughs> and very soon after, visits had been exchanged between the families. So nevertheless, this is just barreling forward. <laughs> he was requested to discontinue the intercourse till he was in a better position. After some months' banishment from the house of his betrothed, he was readmitted and soon after married. I wonder how long this courtship actually took. This courtship couldn't have lasted longer than a year. He was married when yeah. he was 19. Yeah. See, she was definitely a girl like when, yeah, when like, she was married, right? But I think about like these courtships, when you hear about the courtships in like the 1800s, even like the, the 1900s, like coming up to like even like the 1950s and stuff, like you would meet somebody, you'd go out on like six dates and you'd be like, this is the guy. And then you'd be married. And then you'd be popping out babies. And you probably were like 19 years old. I would guess that there was also a measure of security guaranteed into a marriage that was more essential to living back then. Where yeah. you were like, <clears throat> got to get my life in order, you know, yeah. or else I'm going to starve in the streets or whatever. Uh, I, and, then, and then because of the way things are in society, if I don't, if I dally too long, I'm going to miss my chance to get married at all. Yeah, and then I won't have babies, and then uh, no one will take care of me. That's right. Yeah. How lucky are we? Yeah, we've, we've freed ourselves of those restrictions, of those necessities. Now yeah. we just like, got your Serb check, and you're all good, baby. <laughs> you're all good, baby. You're cruising <laughs> down Money Street, USA. <laughs> I wish. All right, let's move on here. So he's been married. It was a most happy union, for though the young Dupre rose within the space of four or five years to fame, if not to fortune, and associated with the cream of Italian and foreign society, it never entered his heart to be ashamed of his humble origin or his good and simple wife, to whom he never alludes without tender gratitude and affection. That's a sign of a good marriage, to be not ashamed. Yeah, that's, I, that's the one thing I look for. <laughs> Like, listen, if I'm bringing you to an improv show, that's the one thing I look for <laughs> in a courtship. <laughs> don't leave ashamed. Please don't leave ashamed. <laughs> that's when I knew Sheldon was the one, when he was not ashamed of me. When he was still there at the end? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was at the bar, like he'd stopped watching, but he was still there. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. Incidentally, if you're interested in reading portions of Giovanni Dupre's actual memoir, it's available online. Project Gutenberg has countless uh, ebooks of books that are now in the public domain, and so you can find this one. Uh, its full title is 
Thoughts on Art and Autobiographical Memoirs of Giovanni Dupre, published 1886. I, I haven't read the whole thing. I'm not a maniac, but I've read parts of it, and it is pretty cool uh, to hear the thoughts of a working artist living in those days. So check it out if you're interested. You can find it at gutenberg.org. Okay, get on your phone, get to the Instagram page, and follow along with us as we explore the beauty of art when we return with part two of Giovanni Dupre. We're back. Okay, so uh, just to remind you, at famous.deeds on Instagram or thesonarnetwork.com. Just go to the dubious book page there. On this episode page, you'll find all the pictures. Now, if you're driving, for God's sakes, don't do any of this, okay? It's not worth it. It's just a few pictures. Just look at it when you get home or wherever you get to. But otherwise, enjoy. Uh, Okay, so we're going to jump into part two here and learn about uh, the professional career of Giovanni Dupre with Jan Caruana. The author's thoughts on art are as valuable as his personal memories are interesting and all tend to show him a true artist and a true gentleman. The first great work which brought Dupre into notice was his Abel. Whoa! A prostrate figure representing the good brother at the moment he received the fratricidal blow. That's good. Yeah, he's very good. He's very good. The Death of Abel. Cain and Abel, as you know, I didn't, I had to look this up, the biblical story of the two sons of Adam and Eve. Cain murdered Abel after God favored Abel's sacrifices over Cain's. Jealous. This uh, is one of his most, if not his most famous work. It's a life-sized marble sculpture of the fallen Abel. Now, uh, I think the first thing we all look for is... How's he hiding the penis? And I gotta say, great job. Yes. (laughs) Like, I barely notice it's not there. You're absolutely right. That cloth is just barely dangling off of his penis. And it's only, like, it's it's literally, the penis is literally the only thing it's covering. So it's just like, by pure chance, it has stayed over it completely. (laughs) As though it's about to fall off. And why were Cain and Abel naked when he murdered them? I guess maybe as the children of Adam and Eve, they weren't even wearing clothes. Maybe that was the deal? Well, but then, because they were not in the Garden of Eden anymore, so they, Adam and Eve, when they left the Garden of Eden, they felt shame and covered themselves. But just barely. Just barely. It's just a whisper of, of a covering. So shame was very very light back then it's just like it feels like we've built shame up over the centuries because like these guys were so we're still very comfortable with their bodies look i'm only ashamed of this one part and i'm just gonna i'm gonna do everything i can to only cover this one part of my body yeah they knew what was going on (laughs) (laughs) they knew where the devil lived yes that's right the devil lives in my penis um He persuaded the illustrious master Bartolini, Lorenzo Bartolini, the number one Italian sculpture of the day. Famous. 
to visit his studio and pronounce judgment on his most ambitious performance, the verdict was favorable, and all of the world uh, ran to look at the new statue, which was placed at the Academia della Bella Arti, in which institution the young artist was soon appointed to a professorship. So, good for him. Yes, the Academia di Bella Arti di Frienzi, the Academy of Fine Arts of Florence, founded in 1563 and is still in operation today. Wow. Do we know where this, um, this sculpture is today? Is yes, it there? the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. Oh, okay. Good to know if I'm ever there. Interesting to note that um, Italy wasn't a country at this point. Uh, Tuscany was a grand duchy under the control of the Habsburgs. Okay. Orders from illustrious patrons soon poured in on Dupre, and his studio became the resort of the most distinguished men in arts and literature. The Emperor of Russia, that's Nicholas I, visited him, and the Prince Demidov was more his friend than his patron. We've heard of Demidov before in this podcast. The Demidovs are uh, a rich mining family from Russia, and... Oh. Uh, we covered them a little bit in the last chapter, so we're building an expanded universe in this podcast. <laughs> okay. A statue of Cain soon followed that of Abel. And there again is a very strategically, it almost looks like a cat's paw reaching around <laughs> and covering his penis. Yeah, I'm giving this a good look, and there's a lot going on mm-hmm. in that area. Yeah, what is that? What is that? It is almost like he he leapt up, and the the cover just decided to hang there. Maybe. Well, maybe he's just left up after killing his brother. Yeah. He's like, oh, what did I do? Yeah, uh, he he does look distressed. Yes, a statue of Cain soon followed that of Abel, but it was not such a success. And the wits of the day used to say that this time it was Abel who killed Cain. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> Maybe back in the day, all art was assessed on how well the genitals were covered. <laughs> I think the cleverness. so. Cleverness. Yeah. yeah. See, I look at this and I'm like, yeah, I can see this being the number two sculpture of the mm-hmm. time. Yes. Apparently, according to art critics, this was more of a neoclassical look. So again, I don't have that eye. I don't have the trained eye. I can't really tell. Yeah, me either. So it was a step backward. Abel is more beautiful. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. Our thoughts are with him. He's fragile. Yes. He's vulnerable. Tells a yeah. story. This mm-hmm. is a bit more like, it's less so. I won't get into it. I mean, the man is yeah. dead. Rest in peace. <laughs> Dupre never took any interest in politics. His whole soul was absorbed in the pursuit of his art. And in the revolution of 1859, which everyone in Florence was fully prepared for, came upon him like a bomb. April 27th, 1859 was the day of a bloodless coup in Florence that saw the Grand Duke of Tuscany, Leopold II, removed from power. (gasps) And it was the beginning of the unification of Italy. Hey, that's great. Italians took to the streets, demanded change. The Duke left. Nobody died. Great. Um, And it heralded the start of the Second Italian War of Independence that united Italy. Uh, So... Nice. Good for them. Good for them. 
the 27th of April found him shut up in his studio, hard at work, calmly unconscious of the frantic excitement that was raging without, and not till the cries of Viva l'Italia came near and were echoed from the neighboring windows that he was aware of what was going on. Then, and not till then, did he tell his model that she might dress herself and go her way, as he had no stomach for work that day. The great revolution which made so many millions of hearts throb with passionate emotion was to him simply a disturbance, an interruption to the even tenor of life. After this, we can easily understand that the flight of the Grand Duke was a grief to him, and that he thought more of the liberal patron of art, who had a special fondness for him, meaning Dupre, than of the national aspirations for independence and unity. So... Leopold II was a frequent patron of Dupre's works, and so Dupre was kind of like, I'd, I'd rather get the work than have a free Italy. Yeah, it sounds like he kind of knew where his bread was buttered, mm-hmm. and he was kind of, he felt a bit boned that now, like, his, his crony would not be in a place of power, that he could commission beautiful works of art, et cetera, et cetera. This, uh, this opinion made Dupre extremely unpopular with his peers because they were all like, come on, man, where's your national pride? And he's like, I just want to work. Fair. Fair. Think about where he I came from. I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. But what we do not admire is the Marshall Haynow episode. <laughs> oh. We're talking about Julius Jacob von Haynow. Hey now! (laughs) The Austrian general who suppressed insurrectionary movements in Italy and Hungary back in the late 40s with such brutality that he was known as the Hyena of Brescia and the Hangman of Arad. He sounds scary. He flogged women and children. He tortured people. He had over 100 people hanged. Rude. What does he have to do with Giovanni? Ah, well, let me read to you (laughs) Giovanni Dupre's own account of their meeting. One day, a gentleman asked to speak to me. He was a man about to sixty, tall, thin, with deep-set, changeable, and vivacious eyes, thick-marked eyebrows, long moustaches, lofty bearing, and with such a singular and expressive face that when an artist sees it, He is at once possessed with a desire to make it a study. This gentleman said, Would you make my portrait? (laughs) Keep going. I answered, yes. How many seatings do you require to make the model? Six or eight, or more, according to the length of the seatings. When could you begin? The first days of the next week. Very well. Monday I will be with you. At what hour? At nine in the morning, if not inconvenient to you. Goodbye, then, until Monday. Do you know who I am? I have not the honor. I am Marshal Haynow. <laughs> and I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> Marshall Haynow, so he was just like, he didn't introduce himself until he made the deal. This is Dupre's defense. He's like, I didn't know who he was. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, So 
he he didn't know he didn't he was like oh man i said yes to painting his portraits uh but i didn't know it was marshall hay now but his face is so his face is so perfect i have to paint it he was also a painter so this was an actual portrait that he did instead of a statue right. so his his two defenses were a i had already said yes before i knew who he was b look at that face look at that Come mustache on. it's look a at face that begging begging <laughs> to be painted but the, but these author, this author does not approve. Making all due allowance for artistic instincts, the reader's sympathy cannot follow the author when he sacrifices his dignity to gratify the desire of modeling a remarkable head and the curiosity to talk to an infamous individual. The artist should not forget that he is a man. And if he cannot feel for his fellow men so far away as Hungary, he was Italian and could remember the atrocities committed in Lombardy in 1849. An outcry was raised against Professor Dupre when the fact became known, and the incident of the London draymen hunting the woman flogger out of the city was quoted with commendations. So... The international incident which occurred in London in 1850 was that General Haynow was uh, <laughs> retired after his military exploits, and he went to London on vacation to tour some breweries. Oh. And while he was there, people started recognizing him. That's how, like, that's how famous he was. It's just like wow. folks on the street were like, that's, That's hey now. Marshall Haynow. Uh, and it's easy to tell because of that mustache. Yeah. And the mob attacked him. He was stripped and beaten with broomsticks. Manure was thrown. A bale of hay was dropped on his head. Uh, he had to get pulled away um, by police and escaped disguised as uh, a washerwoman. Not so pretty now, hey now? So Haynow got his got his justice from the court of public opinion. He got beaten wow. up by an angry mob. I know this is not great for the podcast, but I I just want to talk about this picture of Haynow on his horse. Did did Giovanni paint this picture? Because the the thing about this picture with the horse is is the general General Haynow is mm -hmm. like kind of like looking directly at the viewer. But the hilarious thing. Mm -hmm. And he's holding a, a sword aloft, like he's getting ready to go into battle. He's like, his his face is saying, let's crack sc some skulls. But the horse also seems to be looking right at the viewer. And the horse's face is like, yeah, girl, I know. <laughs> like, doesn't this look like the most put upon <laughs> horse you've ever seen in your life? Like, I'm just going to take this bitch into battle and then I'm going back to the stable. I'm going to have a lot of hay tonight. Like, that's how the horse that's, is looking. <laughs> that horse is like, please don't include me in this. Yeah, don't, like, don't hate me. the player, hate the game. So Giovanni Dupre did not paint that picture. Uh, everybody hated Dupre for this. All of his artist friends were like, I can't believe you did that. Um, except for his one friend, Bezuoli, who came to him and said, everybody's talking shit about you, Dupre. I was the only one that defended you. I, all, I just said, look, you get a job, you get offered a job, you take the job. And Dupre was like, thank you. No one else understands. And Buzoli is like, I understand. And Dupre said, well, I'm glad you do because uh, <laughs> Haynow is also looking for someone to paint a full body portrait of him on a horse. And Bezuoli was like, I'll do it. <laughs> so this wow. is, is Bezuoli's painting of Haynow that he got through his connection with Giovanni Dupre. 
see, sometimes, you know, maybe, maybe you're very adamant. You don't shop at Walmart, but you're like, my rent is due. I'm doing this Walmart commercial. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you have to like swallow it. But at the same time, I think about it and I get that for sure. But at the same time, I think about it and I'm like, well, when you go down in history, do you want to be Beyonce singing at Obama's inauguration or do you want to be three doors down at Trump's? This was the number one question for me. Where do you draw the line as an artist taking commissions? Like, where would you draw the line? Not that we're sculptors, Mm -hmm. but we're artists. Yeah. Where would you draw the line in terms of commissions from certain people or organizations? I think we've all done corporates where we're like, oh man, I can't believe I'm doing a corporate for this company or, but you kind of, you know, you do it because sometimes it's just like, I need to pay my rent. But I think, um, I remember my agent uh, saying, hey, I have an audition for this commercial. I can't really tell you what it's for. It's a PSA. I can't tell you exactly what it's for, but it might be for the conservative government of Canada. And I just went, I'm not going to that. I think that's fair. It's it's hard to say because, you know, this is your job and you you kind of have to go, okay, well, you know, where where do my politics come into play in this job that I'm doing? What this study has taught me or led me to conclude about Dupre is that he didn't turn down a gig. <laughs> That guy would go to the opening of an envelope. Let's just call it a spade. And we know those people. We know we know yeah, those sure. people. And I think it's and I think it's okay to be that person. It's just like you got a gig, I'll do the gig. Like it's just yeah. like I'm available. And uh, and I have some sympathy for him because of where we know we he came from. He came yeah. from poverty where you couldn't string together your dinner. Yeah. Uh, it makes sense that he would be like, "You have a gig, I'll take it." You know what I mean? Never turn down a yeah. gig. This is like the Michael Caine of sculptors, (laughs) said yes to everything. But also, I guess, too, like, do you, that also brings up the question is, like, do you view art as commerce? So, for instance, he might say, yeah, I'll paint this picture of this guy. Like, you know, what what is this to me except a paycheck? And it allows Mm -hmm. me to do the next Cain or Abel. It allows me to hole up in my studio for six months and carve something that I think is beautiful, that I think has meaning out of marble? Like, do the ends justify the means? Like, are you going to do, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a Michael Caine movie, but are you going to do... Jaws the Revenge. Jaws the Revenge, so you can do Batman? (laughs) (laughs) Hannah and her sisters. Hannah and her sisters. Like, uh, (laughs) you know, does the end justify the means? That is how I justify shitty gigs. Now, I haven't taken unconscionable gigs, but I have taken gigs that I don't enjoy because I'm like, well, I want to buy this. Yes. And now, and this, this is going to give me a reason to feel good about this job that I just said yes to. It's true. And I think we're like very lucky and very privileged to be able to have this conversation because like there are so many people, you know, in the world who are like, you're turning down work. Are you kidding me? Like, I need to pay my rent. My kid needs food. Like... I got to put shoes on my baby. Like, I don't have a baby. Do babies wear shoes? I don't know. But... Uh, only only when you want them to look cute. Don't, <laughs> I, my rule was he can wear shoes when he can walk. <laughs> That's a great rule. I feel the same way about myself. Um, <laughs> if I'm not outside, I'm not wearing shoes. <laughs> uh, now, where are we here? Passing out 
of the Piazza San Marco into the quiet little street Via della Sapienza, the street of knowledge. I think we're talking about Siena, his hometown. Mm-hmm. On the right hand, we come to a small door plate, G. Dupre. Right opposite the door in the little entrance hall, the first murderer. What a name. The first murderer glares down on us, every limb and muscle of his body expressing the intense energy of rage. In an inner apartment, we behold his victim lying prostrate, the rigidity of death just settling on his noble countenance and manly form. And there is the Madonna, with the Christ supported on her knee, sublime in her grief, as she bends over to look into the dead face on which no trace of suffering is visible, nothing to mar the perfect beauty and perfect repose expressed in the whole figure. The end. Wow. I've really come around on this guy. What a, what a trip, right? He was like sympathetic, then a little creepy, then talented. Yeah. This, these sculptures are beautiful. Yeah, they are. This uh, this one, this last one, La Pieta of Mary and, and Jesus, uh, is his most famous work. So I've read. Yes, I do feel like now that you've said the name and I see the sculpture, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know this guy. And now I feel foolish oh, at yeah? the beginning for, for ragging uh, on him. Well, I have never heard of him and I don't know any of his art, but I am a Philistine. So... Um, <laughs> And when I say I've I've seen this this sculpture and I've heard the name, I mean on Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like not going to museums, Paul. <laughs> You're gonna ace that category on Jeopardy now. Second most famous Italian sculptures. Giovanni Ribisi. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, it's Dupre. Dupre was not. You can find Jan Caruana on Instagram at Two Little Sandwiches, where she posts about food for your body and food for your soul. She's also got a newsletter, a Two Little Sandwiches newsletter, and if you subscribe to that, I promise you, it'll be the most wholesome thing you read all month. It's just wonderful. It's got recipes, crossword puzzles, and messages from Jan. She's the best. Trust me. Next episode... When you consider that at the time of this book's publishing, 1889, electric light was not yet commonly available in households, it should come as no surprise that people were absolutely fawning over Thomas Edison. And indeed, the authors of The Pictorial Treasury absolutely love him. My guest, however, completely hates his guts. Why? Find out in Chapter 7, Thomas Alva Edison. The Dubious Book of Famous Deeds is produced and recorded in Toronto. It's part of the Sonar Network. Go to thesonarnetwork.com and check out the many funny and thoughtful podcasts offered there. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave me a review. It goes a long way towards helping this show find its audience. You can subscribe as well so that you never miss an episode. Follow the podcast online at Famous Deeds on Twitter and at Famous.Deeds on Instagram. And you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BatesBot9000. If you want to get in touch, whether to ask questions, correct my work, lodge a complaint, or just say hi, I want to hear from you. 
shoot an email to famousdeeds at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the work I put into researching and producing this podcast, why not buy me a coffee? You can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash famous.deeds. It's an easy way to support creators all over the internet. Until next time, I'm Paul Bates. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. 